Welcome once again to Between the Lines, a series of podcasts devoted to the pleasures and challenges of literary translation. Uh, it's organised by me, Timothy Matthews in UCL, and Simon Cook in the University of Edinburgh. And today I'm d- delighted to be joined by Joyce Quick, who for many years was a lecturer in German here at UCL, and since 2000 has been translating texts from German into English, ranging from Freud to Kafka to the Brothers Grimm. Um, now, Joyce, um, you've done so much translation from the German into English, and I just wondered how you'd started, how, how the translation bug had uh, affected you and infected you, if you like, in the first place. Well, I suppose it grew gradually from uh, simply teaching something that was called translation here at UCL in the German department. Um, It had for too long, I think, uh, been regarded simply as an exercise in comprehension. More and more complex texts, but uh, more and more comprehension. Well, there's a limit to that. There's a limit to which you can produce even a precy of a text. And uh, I was not satisfied with it. I had one very good transla- uh, uh, teacher of transla- uh, translation myself, way, way back when I was also a student here, uh, old uh, Professor McGill. But beyond that, it was really a rather static uh, exercise, and there was more to it than that. Side by side, we were teaching uh, literary texts. We were teaching how to read a text. And there was surely some way of bringing these together. And this became acute, actually, when um, I was asked uh, simply to edit a major translation, which was of uh, Coleridge's contemporary translation of Schiller's major play, uh, historical play, Wallenstein. Uh, For that, it required not just a scrutiny of editions or of uh, manuscripts, but very much an appreciation of the kind of language that Coleridge found to render um, a major pioneering historical drama, and uh, how the two matched, didn't match, what problems uh, Coleridge was able to uh, identify, solve, and simply find a viable English diction for. Uh, Well, you need to think about translation at that stage, and that was the stage where I suppose I drifted into the growing uh, discipline of translation theory. And so the actual scrutiny of translations, thinking about how they function, what problems they raise, and then finally doing it, uh, or blended really very satisfactorily, I think. Uh, there's a, there's a, an interesting and, and a very vibrant uh, overlap, isn't there, then, bet- mm. between the activity of translating and the activity of literary criticism? Indeed, indeed. Um, theory sometimes intruded. Uh, it's sometimes, well, it's now, I think, the... Um, customary way we take it for granted to uh, think of texts as existing largely in terms of how the reader reads them, which means a multiplicity of readings, which is how the text exists, and uh, in a sense gets overlaid by a whole swarm of uh, ways of understanding it. Uh, And I think that's something one takes for granted this built-in indeterminacy, indeterminacy in the act of in, in the existence of the text. Uh, but when you're actually doing the job, actually translating, you are brought back to a central text. You're brought back to the fact that this that there is something primary here uh, and that you have to deal with it sentence by sentence, word by word, paragraph by paragraph, whole uh, work by whole work. Um, So it's a curious circle takes place uh, by way of a sense of indeterminacy back to a sense of a certain fixed something that is, as it were, the the queen bee in the swarm. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then it's a case of making your own decisions. And uh, one set of decisions are not ever going to entirely match another set of decisions. They will overlap tremendously. After all, there is the shared agreement that it is Kafka's that we're all of us translating hundreds and hundreds of times, I may say. Mm. Um, but, uh, so it goes on, so it's a kind of circle. And you're back to specific interpretive decisions. Uh, in, in recent times, you're particularly well known for mm. translating Kafka, uh, also Freud, mm. uh, and also the stories of Grimm. Mm -hmm. um, and in uh, one or two of the excellent introductions that you write to those books, um, and I must say those introductions are themselves, I feel, a, a testimony to the, to the way the translation activity and the literary, literary criticism activity feed on each other. I think you write uh, in, in a very uh, suggestive and, and uh, most elegant way about that overlap. Um, but in, in one of those essays, you talk about the, picking up on the idea of indeterminacy, uh, you talk uh, about the way that the English lexis is, is essentially broader uh, mm -hmm. than the German one, um, and that therefore there are more options uh, that, that, that a reader would be aware of around a certain idea, and that therefore the translator has to feed into to a certain extent. Um, just wonder if you might want to tell us more about that in, in a general, in a particular way. Yes, I'll try. Uh, oddly, Kafka is not the best example to go by because his vocabulary is, in fact, very narrow. Um, but uh, one little instance that does occur to me, actually, from, from Coleridge's Weinstein, um, key word, single word in it, that comes again and again, is the idea of fortune, of luck, of astronomical prophecy according to the movements of the stars. How will it turn out? We'll wait on what the astrologer says. How will it turn out? Accident and accident after accident in the course of the plot, uh, based strictly on luck, on coincidence, on accident, it is reflected in the diction. Gluck is the word that is used. Now, what do you use in German, in English, to render all the range of possible meanings that are in that look? Because it's the word that's also used for what we would call happiness. Mm. It's the distinction it mean, uh, makes between luck and fortune and good luck and bad fortune. Um, it's the hap bit in perhaps. And... Uh, I noticed that Coleridge, where it, it acts as a kind of bell tolling through that work, but where it's a single great big sonorous bell in, in, in Schiller, um, Coleridge rings the changes. And he uses every possible range of words that apparently fits the word in the particular context. Um, it means you've lost something, but you've gained something too. And in both cases, the, the idea of chance, which is, I suppose, the basic use for where one would translate Glück, uh, happiness is chance, uh, um, is, is, is the way courage solves the problem, but it does see it as a problem. So mm. it, that feeds in, doesn't it, to, to, mm. the, to the quite common uh, mm. issue that we face in translation, isn't it, of, of whether or not to use the same word consistently in the translation. Uh, in other words, trying to use the same word that's used in the original, if one new word is used all the way through, whether or not in the translation we should continue to use one word all the yeah. way through. And your example from Coleridge, and indeed your own practice, suggests that mm. we, we, we probably shouldn't always do that. It's horses for courses. Uh, in some works, I think one should. Um, Especially, actually, if you've got a, a repeated phrase mm. and uh, you're meant to remember that phrase because in some kind of quasi-musical structure it's going to come back again and you've got to recall. Mm. Uh, I, I, for a translator of Thomas Mann, that's crucial. Um, 
But not always, I don't think. And it's a case of, is there a suitable single word that will do the trick? So you can play it both ways or use it sufficiently often for the, the, the idea of constancy to come through. But it's whether it's playing, really playing the part of a motif. And Freud is different here than, than, uh, than Kafka anyway because of the vexed question of terminology. Yes. I, I, I want to come back to Freud, yeah. but, but, but while we're on the subject of Kafka, and, mm. and you know, I, I take your point from before that his, his own lexus is reasonably narrow, mm. but, but, but one example that you, that you talk about in your introduction, and it's the introduction to the volume of, of, of Die Verwandlung, the, the mm. Metamorphosis, and other stories, which is published by Penguin, isn't it? Uh, no, it's oh, is it Oxford? OUP. OUP, yes. Yeah. yes. Uh, yeah. And the you have to make that difference, by the way. Yes, yes well, we must come back to that. Yes, yeah. that, that, yeah. but, but it's the Freud that's for, it's in the Penguin series, isn't it? Uh, there's there's one one the uh, small uh, the joke and yeah. its relation with uh, unconscious that's in Penguin, uh, but the, the the interpretation of dreams is for Oxford. Right. Mm. Um, but with regard to Kafka, you talk about the word schult, uh, which means oh, guilt, doesn't yeah. it, it, it in, in a straightforward yeah. manner. Mm. Um, but of course, there are so many other uh, associations mm. uh, that build, build themselves into the of word course. schult to yeah. do with debt mm -hmm. and, and uh, indebtedness and, and that yeah. sort of thing. So mm -hmm. there you, you talk very eloquently about the, the range of, of words that are needed while still giving the idea of, of a central idea, a central theme, shall we say. Yes, I'd forgotten about Schultz, actually. <laughs> it's a very good instance. Um, yes, I mean, they all play into the um, situation out of which the defavantment arises. Mm. Uh, the fact that the parents are in debt. And, uh, uh, well, in debt, all right, and the wretched son feels himself obliged, obliged also, can be um, used uh, has a term that's a variant on short. It feels it's obliged to pay them, pay it back. Uh, yes, but uh, there is a use in one of the translations of even the English Bible: "Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, mm -hmm. those to whom we owe something." I see. And uh, that idea of owing and indebtedness then feeds into the idea of gu guilt mm. uh, because you haven't paid it back. Mm. And so it goes on. Mm. Um, and, and the whole idea gets deeper and deeper and uh, you've got to use a handful of words then for English. And with deep apologies, somewhere put a little note. And I, you know, I, I, I hate having to mm. use translator's explanation but I think translator's explanation at some point uh, discreetly used uh, is sometimes necessary or well, perhaps in the accompanying essay as I say which, yeah. which you write yeah. uh, so so artistically if I may put it that way but I, I don't like translation's explanations either I yeah. must say as a matter of, of yeah. taste and yeah. uh, more limited practice than yours but I mean f from your point of view why do you find them distasteful? Well, the basic expectation that the text should be readable in English mm -hmm. and that it should be felt to a, as a literary translation and not an entirely scholarly one where you're stumbling over it all the time. Mm -hmm. The Coleridge text was a scholarly text and it was overburdened with uh, footnotes, mm -hmm. uh, but not all of them to do with the, by no means all of them to do with the translation. Mm -hmm. Um, so one's translating an, an experience of reading as much as as much as oh, a, a text as yeah. such. Well, there are those who would argue that the footnotes part of the reading experience, um, and uh, certainly with Coleridge's marginal notes, that's the mm. case. But uh, obviously, if there are footnotes oh, there, they, oh, they are. But one yeah. wouldn't want to add footnotes where they weren't before. No, it, no. yeah. Mm. Um, mm. So it's a very subjective thing, going, going back to that. There I, mean, so many I, I, I really am um, most grateful to my editor at OUP for allowing me space for an extended translation, translator's note. Um, it's not always possible, but that's where you could hive off a whole lot of the commentary. Uh, 
Mm. Uh, it was, no, in, exceedingly helpful. Well, I think mm. your essay, you know, it, um, gives the steer, as it were, as, as to how mm. to read the translation. So I think that's enormously useful. The other thing you, you, you talk about, um, uh, both with respect to Freud and Kafka, um, are the related ideas of, of syntax and, and grammar. Um, mm. And how obviously different those are in German yeah. and in English, um, and the, the, the problems that that poses, because syntax and grammar are integral uh, to, to the thinking and the experiences of these writers. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. and sp sticking with Kafka for a moment, if we may, mm -hmm. you, yeah. you, you talk about the syntax in particular, uh, which, which in other words, long sentences, complicated. Mm -hmm relations of main clause to sub-clause, mm. and also the build-up of apposition, which means um, that ideas are, are, are connected ideas are, are put together with each other without too much um, uh, syntactical explanation, syntactical structure, but just put in apposition, as we say, yeah. put next to each mm. other. Um, you get a rather alarming pile-up of ideas, I think. Yes. So, so that's going to pause. That's going to cause quite a lot of problems putting it into another language, isn't it? Very, it, it is very, very difficult. Um, if you stick too closely, I think you risk not re being sufficiently readable enough in English as English, and uh, I'm not sure that I've avoided that in many cases. Um, on the other hand, it, it, it is so distinctive, and Kafka himself complained he was writing a paper German, uh, that it was a literary artificial language, not spoken language. Um, I think he overdoes it there. There are a few Austro-Hungarian phrases are characteristic in, in his texts, but, but on the whole one very much gets the point. And that's my excuse, then, mm. for writing a, a paper English. Uh, but it is an excuse. Uh, but of course, he, he may complain about his, his own language, mm. as it were, but mm. uh, in complaining about his own language, he's bearing further witness to the kind of problems that he's suffering from or trying to deal with, which I suppose is that uh, sense of false rationalism uh, that, that imposes itself and which he finds expression for in this enormously elaborate uh, sentence structure. Yes, false, ra false rationalism is a, is, a, is a good phrase because a syntax is structure and rational structure. Uh, somehow, subject, verb, object is, has to land somehow. <laughs> um, but uh, it's how he uses it, a certain tricks of grammar quite specifically. Um, I spoke earlier of indeterminacy, mm. and one of the great uh, grammatical instruments in this for Kafka is simply the old subjunctive mood, as it were, mm -hmm. um, as if. And uh, the dream that merges uh, into reality and returns to the dream, or vice versa. Uh, he will play games with the subjunctive mood merging into the indicative and merging back again. He will use this very curious, it was as if the snow were falling uh, and covering him over entirely. Um, whereas in English, and, and using it purposefully, I think, to, to indicate that uh, really language isn't very good at saying anything specific at all. There is a language scepticism built in to, to that. Uh, but uh, somehow managing to, uh, to make a statement about being difficult to make a statement. Um, and the subjunctive helps here tremendously. And the point that I'm uh, taking far, far too long to get round to, of not course, sure. is that the subject, the subjunctive, uh, is not in such good working order in English. It's as if it was, is what we say. 
Uh, and it's, it's not as marked, mm, is it? Well, no, if I can get no. away with even not using it and, uh, and yeah. implying mm. it. I mean, I'm talking in speech now. One yes, would imply a yes. subjunctive. Yeah. Mm. That may not come across in the written language. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, of course, the big uh, difference, too, is that uh, German will use the subjunctive for implied indirect speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that for whole stretches... You can drop having to say, he said, he replied, uh, she interrupted. And as long as that uh, subjunctive mood is operating, you know it's not quite the voice of the narrator. Which you can do in French well as well, Mm -hmm. oddly using the conditional rather than the subjunctive. Yes, well, they they do get an overlap. (laughs) Yes. Um, But, uh, and that that is, uh, Zebot does the same thing. Very much so. Um, and uh, I mean, it's a great trick for uh, confusing the reader mm-hmm. as to whose voice is speaking. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've gone over from grammar, to, from syntax to grammar mm-hmm. there, but but mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah. overall, mm-hmm. uh, it creates a, a, another a, 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 another effect of the word for which you have is haunting in Kafka. Mm-hmm. You, you get the idea of. of Uncomplete, incomplete ideas, uncompleted sentences and trains of thought. That, that I mean, I know the sentences mm-hmm. are complete. Oh yes, uh, they really are. And they, you know, the, 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 see, you know, grammatically and syntactically, nothing is left uh, to, to the mm. doubt of, of mm. the reader. But nonetheless, uh, uh, there's a huge indeterminacy builds up, doesn't it, of where these ideas have come from and how they link together and whose voice they're being spoken yeah. in, etc. Yeah. Well. He's terribly clever, and I think this also has to do with this uh, built-in implication that language itself is uncertain. Um, That uh, he will use uh, adverbs like guns, which you play the same game in English. Do you mean very big or only rather big? And uh, by simply saying, quite big. And uh, a whole series of qualifications that he will make in in a sequence of a very long sentence. Um, He'll make what's apparently a a good firm statement. And then in will come the qualifications. Uh, Although, after all, um, well, I mean... And all those little little phrases that find you know, every variation on but, but, however, and nevertheless are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where his lexis is enormously wide. Mm-hmm. Um, and you wonder, well, in that case, what's happened to the initial statement? It has been qualified away. Uh, and uh, you very often end up with uh, either having said nothing or having gone back to the first statement that you were trying to argue with. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and that, I think, is, a, is again, a, a trick of the adverbs. Mm-hmm. And clusters of uh, uh, where, what, how adverbs that get in the way of a statement so you don't get a headlong set of appositions, but you get <laughs> terribly difficult to manoeuvre around those adverbs to um, to make the statement at all. Um, poor old Gregor has that trouble, of course, when he's trying to get around the furniture. In the in the metamorphosis, yeah, that's yes. right. He can't get um, around his own furniture, yeah. which is uh, infected by the symbolic language of his, of the family. Yes, yes, um, indeed. Yeah. Um, it's um, given that there are so many uh, possibilities mm. um, in play, while at the same time Kafka's language seems syntactically in, in, in the way the sentences are, are structured to be nailed. So there's this combination of nailing things down syntactically, but creating an enormous amount of indeterminacy at yes, the same time. Yes, that's that's given, all right. I wondered how. Um, that relates to uh, your your job as a translator, um, given the fact there are so many other translators, you mentioned this before, mm. of, of, of Kafka, who are also struggling with this combination of, of, mm. of uh, st- straight jacket uh, mm. uh, linguistic convention combined with 
proliferation of, 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 of anxiety and possibility. So that's a very subjective situation to be in, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, well, that's where I think uh, you have, as I suggested at the very beginning, you find yourself coming back to the text mm. all the time mm. and wrestling with quite specific problems of grammar and syntax and vocabulary. And um, then, as you're actually doing it and having to decide between this or that alternative, insofar as you are self-aware about it, seeing that this or that alternative has implications this way or that way for an interpretation. Mm. Um, so, as a translator, what, mm. one, one's hoping... What is one hoping for? One's hoping for a reader to get engaged with one's own interpretation as well, isn't it? Uh, or, or not, or not quite as much as that? Or? I think the translator... The, the, the reader is, is so much... The non-German-speaking reader mm. is so much at the translator's mercy. Yes. Um, it, it's terribly difficult, this bit, because um, some of the tendencies of your translation, if you're aware of them, you can do something about it. But for goodness sake, mostly you're not. Mm. Uh, I, I can think of one or two instances which are strictly ideological instances where I have pointed something. Uh, they were both in a Freud text, actually. Uh, but Kafka escapes that kind of thing. Um, and in other words, that one's operating so much on the unconscious level or yeah, something, um, or unaware, something like that? No, you're aware no, that, yes. that Kafka's text itself is so open that it offers a this or a that or, or the other, mm-hmm. um, which if you choose it, you're sending the yes. text in a certain direction. So if you're not to be utterly paralysed, you're going to choose as open a phrase as you possibly can. Mm. Um, And this is sometimes difficult because the... uh, the Well, the example I think I gave in in that um, uh, reader uh, translator's note was an utterly simple one of, uh, from the very first text that Kafka ever published, of the story told through boy's eye view um, and uh, sitting at a table having his supper, looking through the window and the lads are outside saying come out to play. Um, The window has curtains, and this is a boy who's just registering, the window has curtains that are described in passing as Deutsche la Charte. They've got holes in them. Mm-hmm. And if you're to visualize this situation, you ask yourself, well, what kind of holes? And Kafka simply says, with this quite unobtrusive adjective in front of the noun, Deutsche la Charte are they torn? Have they got holes in them because they're torn? Well, that would take you in a direction of what kind of boy is this? Uh, is he growing up in a, a poor family who can't afford curtains are all in one piece? Um, the other word for Deutschlöschup, which the dictionary gave me, and I didn't know, certainly, but my German-speaking friends assured me was 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 okay. Uh, there's a kind of coarse crocheting work mm. that has very large holes in it. In other words, these are good bourgeois curtains that some good mother or aunt has made. So it's a different kind of background for the boy. You're making a social world whereas Kafka doesn't make any social world at all, except it's a boy and the lads are outside. Um, so you use... I simply left it open the uh, and said curtains with holes in, which is not nearly such an en passant, unobtrusive phrase. 
uh, it draws attention to the damn curtains and not... Um, I was going to you ask whether it was an unusual me. word anyway, because of that door in front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, it said yeah, holes they, through, they holes. through. Well, yeah. he was seeing the boys through, uh-huh. yeah, I guess. But no, Deutschlöchern is to crochet with a very large uh-huh. meshed right. piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I may be making a meal of this, no, but I did country. get stuck on yeah, the yeah. phrase. Yeah. And in an environment where there's so many translations mm. of, of this text and others, mm. I mean, what what's... What's your feeling about that? I mean, I suppose one... These are very personal decisions mm. in, in, made yeah. in, in the spirit of openness, as you say. Yeah, I think one has uh, to but, be. But yeah. I suppose, is that how one distinguishes oneself from other translators, or doesn't it matter that, that, that there are so many other translators? I think it's uh, uh, the French critic Antoine Berman who talks mm. about uh, the, the destiny of, of, of great works of literature, as it were, to be retranslated all oh, the time. again and it's, again, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and historically that has on the whole been the case, uh, yeah. even with sacred texts like uh, the Bible or, or, uh, or the mm. interpretation of dreams. Mm. Um, I, I guess we, we, all of us, I suppose, rest on, on the ones who've gone before. As far as Kafka was concerned, uh, well, to contrast with Freud, with, in Freud's case, there was this overwhelmingly powerful and strong translation existing. You couldn't not uh, avoid it or ignore it, especially as there'd been an enormous amount uh, of uh, commentary and criticism. Uh, sub- uh, it had been subjected to, to commentary and criticism over the past 20 years, mm. which, which I knew about and was fully aware of. You're talking uh, about the standard edition yeah, of the complete works The standard works of Freud, edition, and yeah. so in that case, there was a strong predecessor uh, that one had to take into account. Lytton Strachey, clearly, yeah. and, mm. and also the whole project that you mentioned, in fact, mm. in the introdu- your introduction to mm. uh, jokes in their relation to the unconscious. Um, mm. um, you know, the whole project of trying to find a, a standard terminology in English for the psychoanalytical process and the history of that idea. Well, that froze really as uh, something highly medical and highly arcane. Mm. Uh, it, it, and was deliberately intended by uh, Ernest Jones and, uh, other, uh, and the translators in his train. Jones actually drafted a list of standards versions of of, uh, of the terminology that was strictly technical and intentionally technical mm. to make a profession. Mm. Um, and uh, so with that so deeply ingrained um, that I think English, there was a generation of English and American uh, analysts and, and psychiatrists who had no German and, and didn't feel the need of it. Uh, they had a text and worked from, from that. Um, with Kafka, the case is different in the sense that there wasn't really a strong predecessor. But there was, I said swarms earlier, there were swarms and swarms of roughly contemporary mm. translators and as the first translators, there were the Muirs, uh, Willa and Edwin Muir. Of Kafka. Of Kafka, yeah. yeah. So um, there were so, so many, I simply decided, no, I can't do this. I, I, it's going to confuse. It's, uh, I don't think any of them are so strong that they need specific reckoning with. Um, uh, that, uh, okay, I'll do my own thing. Um, the Muirs I had written on many, many years ago, so uh, it may well be they've left their mark because I think they're very good, or, you know, they were certainly subject to, to criticism, but uh, uh, the, they certainly offered the pleasure of reading still. In that situation, would you perhaps compare the activity of translating to the activity of performing a piece of music? which have been performed, especially canonical pieces, performed many times, but there is still a performer uh, coming to it at that moment. That's a very good analogy, I think. Yes, yes. Um, And again, yes, one recognises they're all actually translating the same uh, 
uh, uh, same original text. Yes, yes. Mm. Variations on. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But not such variations that uh, you're going to lose it, mm. which I think is... Well, I was going to say a temptation, but I don't think it's a temptation. I think it's just a sound, just a good, uh, a good procedure for poetry, mm-hmm. uh, where you're not uh, expected to uh, follow a plot, no. uh, and where all the the issues are entirely, entirely different linguistically and poetically. Yes, not to say that all narratives are, are linear and going from a beginning to no. an end in any way at all, but no. but, the, but they have a more of that sort of character. The, the, mm. the, the, the temporality is in general forward moving, even if there are That's, fits yes. and starts, mm. many fits and starts in it. Yeah. Whereas in poetry, I think that sense of temporality is is rather different and, mm-hmm. and uh, um, makes a, makes a difference to the translation, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, oh yes. Um, coming back to Freud, though, as, as you say, the, 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 the situation there is different because, um, in English at least, um, mm. and I think probably with other languages too, in, in French as well, that there, there's there's a the only three, you know the only two translations that I know of Freud mm. are French and English, um, and in both cases I think there there has been a tendency to um, to stabilize and to introduce fixity uh, to the various terminologies. Yeah. Um, so, in, in your, I wanted to concentrate, if I may, on on, on uh, the jokes and the, and, uh, the uh-huh. relation to the unconscious text, mm-hmm. um, simply because of, simply because it has jokes in it, and uh, oh, uh, dear. Uh, uh, which may or may not be funny, and, yeah. and which are so context bound. Mm, yeah. um, and uh, I just wondered um, how, well, just in relation to that text, anyway, um, you coped with the idea, coped with the fact. Uh, that, that that so many of, of Freud's turns of phrase that had had been sort of made fixed in that way mm-hmm. rather than dynamic. Well, uh, are you thinking of the joke bits or the theoretical bits? Well, I, was, I suppose the, I suppose I was trying to because they really are quite separate. Oh, right, they, they, them... they do offer quite different. Uh, well, let's should we start with the theory kind of... then? I was thinking right, of that to uh, begin with, yeah, because um, you say some very exciting things about uh, uh, the way that German grammar now, as opposed to syntax that we were concentrating on mm-hmm. before. And German grammar obviously has this capacity to to make nouns mm-hmm. out of verbs. Uh, ah yes, well this um, he's, it's a secondary work in the sense that the whole uh, theoretical sections really do do depend on ones that he'd worked out already in mm. the interpretation of dreams. So he's taking over a framework and a set of terms for it, um, and of course. One of the main concepts that's t- uh, is, uh, that uh, lies at uh, the bottom of it is the unconscious, um, and uh, used again and again, but uh, almost the very repetition of it and its presence throughout. Um, I'm freewheeling a little bit here because I, I, I don't terribly remember what I said in that particular preface. Uh, but, uh, well, quite simply, English doesn't use terms like the unconscious. Um, uh, it, it's inclined to more and more, I think, the more continental uh, reading it does, uh, of French as well as German. Uh, but the inclination is really rather more concrete and to talk about things that are conscious, things that are unconscious, yeah. not this sliding that German does very, very easily um, from, um, from an adjective into an abstract noun. And that, <coughs> I think, makes it very easy to create philosophical concepts and in this case, the, uh, uh, the unconscious. Um, what, what, I wanted, <clears throat> what I wanted to get a hold of, and it is yeah. indicated mm-hmm. in what you say, I think, mm-hmm. um, is um, uh, the fact, as it were, of, of on the mm-hmm. one hand, um, uh, an English and indeed a, a French translation, set of translations, yeah. interested in stabilising 
terminology, stabilizing ways into the, the mental apparatus, yep. stabilizing the mental apparatus itself yep. uh, as a system open for analysis and, mm -hmm. and potential treatment. Yep. So that there's, there's that side of things. And then there's the side of things which, which you point out so eloquently uh, in your text, um, which is that um, the words that he's using, that Freud is using, and the, and the way that he develops them are, are inherently dynamic as opposed to uh -huh. seeking definition. Yes. Mm. And so that yes. the mental apparatus, mm. as one reads through this, this enormous uh, set of works, mm. becomes, it, it is governed by uh, sort of existential situations, existential rules, if you like, that one cannot see beyond, you know, the, the, the edible structure, for yep. example. But nonetheless, and even because of, of the, the strength of that structure, the apparatus is itself enormously dynamic. Yes. Things happen all the time. It is not self-repeating in any way at all. Yeah. And, and uh, you, you communicate to, to, to this reader, at least to me, the, the way that Freud's actual language is, is straddling those two ideas, that there yes. is something called a mind which has limits with a human mind and its socialization and the way we are socialized, that is going to be something we're going to have to absorb. But it is nonetheless enormously mobile. Yes, I'm, now I do remember. Thank you. <laughs> yes, um, that uh, the language tends to freeze something that um, yes is quite simply dynamic, mm -hmm. and uh, yes, it's, it's it's as if um, Aristotle and Goethe, uh, 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 Aristotle and, and and Plato are uh, in conflict here. Uh, the the kind of two ways of thinking, mm. uh, the the uh, the one that wants to pin it down, uh, and the other says, but no, this is a matter of process. <laughs> yeah, and so on. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and no, I do remember yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Um, and it is. I th I think you 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 had the you gave us the idea. I think that that somehow using nouns in that way, you know, the, the, the mm. wonderful way of German of, of creating nouns as well and mm. creating nouns out of process mm. uh, yeah. is, is something which allowed Freud to straddle those two positions, I mm. suppose. So just, yeah. I just wanted to tell us something about how you, how you cope with that in English, you know, for, um, in, general, uh, in a general way. Well, I think um, I probably did it by, by using the continuous form of the verb it is doing. Mm. Um, uh, yes, that's the that is one useful way of doing it, rather than not it does or it is done. Mm. Uh, certainly not it is done. Mm. Uh, though the passive voice, this is actually a, just a, a, a kind of technical problem. It's quite difficult to avoid, so, uh, I, and I've used it more than I would have liked to have done. Mm. Um, but I, I think to to suggest uh, a, a dynamic form of the verb with, with the continuous does help. Mm. Mm. And you talk about uh, another technical point, um, you know, the, the English habit of saying the fact that uh, in, in, oh, to, to yes. indicate a noun, mm. a noun yeah. a, you know, an, an idea in the form of a noun phrase, you, yeah. know, so the, the, you know, the fact that we're sitting here, yeah. you know, type of phrase. Th this, this, I think, has had a, a, a very, very bad effect on uh, early and rather dogmatic psychoanalysis that relied very much on uh, Strachey's translation. Um, the German can operate, um, again, no, we're back to syntax now, operate a noun clause without having an intermediary noun to refer to. It can refer the, the or uh, no, it would be an adjectival clause, won't it? Referring to the idea as uh, encompassed in the clause before, rather than the single noun. Uh, English can't do that, or does so with great difficulty, and usually slips in the fact that. Uh, okay, but when what is labelled a fact in English is simply an idea or a dynamic movement, um, you get a very, very false sense of certainty. This is so. It's a fact. 
it's a completely different yeah. different sense of the relation yeah. between the ideas involved, isn't it? Utterly. And it, it really did enter uh, the idea of Freud as pre presenting not the, not the revealed truth, but uh, the state of affairs in the, in the mental world. Um, uh, it, it, you accord it a kind of positivistic faith, if, if there is such a thing. Um, so in, in, in that... It, it removes a, 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 both the sense of dynamism and it removes the sense of speculation too, mm. which is there. I wanted to ask, uh, um, perhaps a, as a bit of a leap, a, a, a mm. rather general question. Mm. Um, um, would you, I mean, is it possible at this late stage, as it were, uh, to represent Freud uh, to a different set of readers? Um, to and he's, he's, all great thinkers go through a, a good and bad mm. press, don't they? And uh, mm. Freud, a little like Darwin, I suppose, mm. at the moment is generally thought of as someone who's in, imposing, a in very simple terms, a, a determinist view of the world. Yeah. Um, mm. Whereas the, the, the kind of reading you're proposing, which is, I think, you know, mm. broadly coming from a literary perspective as opposed to broadly coming from a scientific perspective mm. or with a scientific ambition, uh, does give a rather different impression of, of what Freud is trying to do for well, for mankind, to put it generally, and, and, yeah. and for us as individuals, mm. um, and, and how, what a difference it makes to, to us to, to know that there is something called the unconscious. Um, you know, and if it's presented in, in this uh, as a way that emphasizes process, uh, it becomes much more of a living idea rather than a silencing one, perhaps. Well, I would, I would hope so. Um, Reflections on the working of uh, what Bettelheim insists on calling the soul, mm. uh, uh, which I managed to call the inner life, I think. Um, these are now thought of in terms of the functioning of the brain mm. and enormous uh, 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 strides are made in the uh, uh, in uh, in examining that in terms of fact, uh, which is um, actually neurology was where Freud started, and yes. uh, found he couldn't the state of knowledge at the time just couldn't get him any further, so he turned elsewhere. Um, so in a sense, uh, Freud is no longer at the centre of. A cutting edge of science, hmm. um, which is where he wanted to be. I mean, this was his illusion, I hmm. think. Yes. And um, so the, the idea of unconscious functioning and the way it does uh, I, I, is much more useful in a literary sense. It's actually useful in, in uh, literary criticism when we talk in terms of displacement. Uh, and it, that is how, of course, uh, Freud was uh, uh, analysing jokes at, at the very beginning of his joke book, uh, mm. was in terms of structures. And, uh, we ought to remind our listeners, perhaps, that mm. condensation and displacement are, mm. are the two words used in English uh, mm. for the, the, the basic structures of how, of how a dream is, put, is, is constructed, yes. is, is mm. put together mm. in, in, in the dreamer's mind. Yeah. Um, so it is two activities, one which brings things together mm. and the other which, which separates elements along some sort of line. Um, um, are, are those words you, you kept? I think you did keep I did, those. I yeah. did. I um, did. Yeah. They, they're, they're good. I had a little feeling that one could have... There was a case for shift for displacement. Um, I was thinking way back to, uh, you know grammarian sound shifts, which is the same word, fair sheet. Uh, but uh, they're so well established and understood, unlike the uh, notorious cassexes, mm -hmm. uh, that there's no point in altering them. And that is the case with technical terminology. Cathexis is the word he uses for how ideas inf infect each other, as it were, isn't it? Uh, and how they're charged with uh, energy. Yeah. Um, you've used the word charge precisely, yes. haven't you, for that? Uh, yeah. which was, yeah. uh, I mean, that brought 
problems with it because uh, he, he's great for metaphors, very, very powerful elucidatory metaphors. And one set, uh, based on water and the flow of water, something dynamic, and another set is uh, based on electricity. Well, fine. Um, and the sparking of, of connections. Um, but when you come to charge, there are certain contexts where charge in the or discharge in the water metaphors and charge and discharge in the electricity metaphors don't quite match. <laughs> uh, and it, thank God it didn't happen very often, but uh, and it was too late by the final mm. chapter anyway to do anything about it. Mm. Uh, but um, uh, that was the kind of... Uh, no, it, it's utterly uh, still debatable, that one. Mm. Invest is a good one, too. For charge, for yes. For charge, yeah. yes, or for yeah. possess, or yeah. that was the word. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we... we a second ago, we, we talked about uh, the the, the, uh, the sort of division in, in jokes and, and the relation to the unconscious between mm. the theoretical side of things yeah. and the fact that there's also loads of jokes in it, yeah. which is, as it were, more practical. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because mm. uh, in dealing uh, for a translator, apart from anything mm. else, because in yeah. dealing with jokes, you're dealing you really are dealing with not only with context but with subjectivity yeah. completely. Mm. And Freud himself makes the point, doesn't it, that the, that the life of the joke is, uh, is in parallel between in the mind of the teller and in the mind uh, the, of the reader or listener. Yes, uh, the, uh, <laughs> and, and that the joke teller needs the recipient to reassure him that it's all right to tell the joke. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> An interesting analogy for the translation process itself. Of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> Um, yeah. And um, you, um, that there's a, there was an earlier translation before uh, S Straight Cheese, wasn't it? Yes. Of, uh, yes. In America, is it, is it a uh, Brill? Brill, he did. Um, it. Yeah. And you use and the. He's got much better jokes, actually, or renderings of the jokes. You yeah. use the very topical um, term for mm. his approach, which is that he domesticates yeah. uh, some of the jokes. Mm. A, a, a word yeah. you've taken from Bronze Venuti, isn't yeah. it? In, in mm. a very interesting way, I think. Um, and uh, I just wondered what, you know, so you, you've come to the conclusion that those jokes become as, or the domesticated jokes mm. are, are as passe as, as, as Freud's original one. So mm. we're back to square one as well. Yeah. What yeah. are we going to do with his jokes? Yeah. And so I, I just, perhaps you'd like to tell us, you know, how, how you approach that in a general way. Well, again, varies from kind of joke to kind of joke. I mean, the... the um, Little witty reposts sometimes one can catch mm. and, and give an equivalent as long as the situation in which they're made mm. uh, are, um, uh, 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 is, is, you know, worth it. Um, one of the first ones which I discovered from Mary Beard is, is uh, actually goes, goes back to, um, well, the joke the Romans were telling it, telling it in, in, uh, in their day uh, about the, um, I'm no good at telling jokes, by the way, um, but uh, the, the emperor seeing the blacksmith and saying, uh, ah, yes, um, you have a son who looks uh, uh, rather like the, yeah, the family, the royal family, uh, did your wife serve at the, in, the in the palace? No, says the blacksmith. My father did. Um, so he throws it back, and Freud uses it as, a, as an example of the aggressive joke, yes. the buried uh, aggression back in it. Um, well, that is easy to translate. Mm. Uh, no, really, no problems there. Um, the ones that uh, th they were the ones I referred to earlier, where where I really did pick on them and retranslate. Uh, not so much personal, I, I thought, as ideological, but perhaps uh, in this case. Um, it's uh, quite a famous one about the, which I hate, I have to say, about uh, the Baroness in Labour. Doctor and the Baron playing cards as she cries out, Oh, mon Dieu, que je, que je souffre. 
it's not, it's not time yet, let's carry on playing our cards. Uh, a little bit later, ach oh mein Gott, mein Gott. No, it's not time yet. Uh, let's go on playing cards. Finally, now, this is, this is where the problem lies. Howl of pain from straight cheek. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, from Brill. The German is OV. Now, I am convinced that has been removed from the list of Jewish jokes that um, uh, uh, Freud uh, made. He was very fond of Jewish jokes. Uh, and I'm convinced that was OV. Mm-hmm. Um, a Jewish exclamation. Exp- a, 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 a the Jewish yeah. exclamation. Yeah. Um, I think there are supposed to be about uh, 54 variations on it. Um, anyway, uh, Freud's analysis, and this is, uh, is interesting, from the highly social French to the high German, Mein Gott, to the natural de- democratic cry of our people. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're going to translate that, he he wrote OV, but I think the natural democratic cry of our people is going to be OV. So I put it there. And um, I did, insofar as this was not uh, crude uh, mimicry, uh, ever, so, ever so slightly in the telling of the Jewish jokes, try and find some Yiddish kind of uh, cadence, uh, which Strachey didn't, and not even Burrell did. And, and I think that's a, a very telling example. Yeah. Thank you, because it, it, it does show yeah. that the you know the, the language of the common people mm. is is not a universal language. It is no. the language of of, mm-hmm. of individual communities and individuals, and With, and and to yeah. express that. Is a way to get across the idea of a common language, I think. And with class implications and with racial implications. I could just ask you a last question. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure how to frame it in my own mind, but uh, you mentioned before um, that there are differences working for different publishers Mm. uh, when it it comes to translating canonical texts. Yeah. is that something you would like to tell us about? What what sort of differences are there, and 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 what difference would that make to to a reader, for example, to be reading? A, well, of course, one be reading a translation produced by a person rather than by a publisher. But uh, nonetheless, I wondered if you want to say something about that interaction between uh, the, the personal situation of, of the translator and her publisher. Well, I've been just very fortunate in mm. mine. That's mm. uh, apart from the the penguin. Um, uh, it's been for OUP, yeah. and they've been enormously supportive. And uh, I like the OUP format uh, because it does... Uh, there is space for an extended translator's note, and they're also furnished with really very good uh, introductions and, uh, mm. you know, mm. uh, students' apparatus. Mm. Uh, I think they're both of them aimed... Uh, I won't even say primarily to the common reader now. I think they're aimed primarily at uh, English departments, at cultural studies departments. Mm -hmm. I do remember my my editor saying at one point, uh, do finish it in time for us to get it on the reading lists. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And then the general reader then, I think... uh, uh, certainly as far as royalties are concerned, coming second, Mm. and as far as marketing is concerned. Right. Um, Thank you. uh, And perhaps one final, final question. Is is there anything you would like to say uh, to anybody uh, thinking of embarking on a translator's life? Or should I say embarking on a particular translation of particular works? I think... Don't do it without some knowledge of any debates there have been about uh, those particular texts. 
don't get overwhelmed by them. I mean, Kafka has you know, he has disappeared under all the commentaries, mm. uh, but do have a sense of what the latest um, critical approach is, because that's where your readership is going to come from. Mm. Um, but uh, once you're aware of it, try and forget it, because you can know too much. Uh, and also, of course, be some, uh, well, I think translators are now aware of the theoretical problems. Nobody translates naively now. Mm. Uh, but uh, bear in mind that many, many of your readers are still going to be reading naively. Mm. Um, um, Good. They're not words of wisdom, really. Very helpful, nonetheless, and uh, thank you very much for our conversation today. My pleasure, my pleasure. <laughs>